This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Sorry from Andrew Dreschel was in the paper last week. And basically what it outlined is that the Carmen's group, local group, they I mean, you know the Carmen's group, they have upped the ante in their bid to operate and develop perhaps, but certainly to operate the entertainment venues in the downtown, First Ontario Centre, First Ontario Concert Hall, Hamilton Place. There is a plan. Last, previous to this, the plan was that they were interested in taking over, maybe even doing a rebuild, but there were, there were lots of different talks. Well, they have now teamed, as we understand, with Oakview Group, which is a big-time LA-based management and event booking group. And when you bring something like this, and we'll get to some of the names of the people who are involved in this, you're probably familiar with some of the names. When you bring this group into this kind of bid, it makes a lot of people say, hmm, hmm, maybe we should really look at this. Scott Warren was the general manager of First Ontario Centre, First Ontario Concert Hall. He ran it on behalf of Spectra, which was the group that oversaw it. Before leaving a few months ago, he is now part of the Carmen's group. He joins us now. Scott, thanks for doing this today. Absolutely. So How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. So, I, I, But I'm there's a few things about this that I'm very curious about, because it is one of those things when you read this that you say, hmm, uh, has this always, has bringing in a major U.S., company like this, a development management concert booking company, has this always been part of the plan or did this become part of the plan partway through? Yeah, you know, it, it was not. It was, it's actually happened fairly organically. What was interesting about it is that um, when, uh, when I left Spectra at the end of the year, uh, Oakview Group, who there's some folks there that I know very well, they, they thought I was going to move back to the States. So when they found out that I was staying here in Hamilton and wanted to stay here and, uh, and wanted to partner with the Carmen's group to put a proposal in to run the venues, they called me almost immediately uh, and said, how do, we, how do we do this together? How can we work together? We, uh, we love what you guys are thinking, what your vision is. We want to be part of that. We don't want to lead it. We want, we want the local group to lead it. We want it to be Hamilton-led, but we, uh, we think we can bring significant things to the table, and we'd love to be part of this. And we said, well, let's, let's talk. Come on up here to Hamilton and take a look around. And they did. And they loved what they saw. We always are slightly self-deprecating up here. You came here from the States. You understand that about us. We, we, yeah. you know, we sometimes wonder why people like us. But if you are an <laughs> L.A.-based group and some of the names, Tim Laiwiki, who was the head of MLSE, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, and uh, uh, Irving Azoff. Now, if people, they may not know the name Irving Azoff, but if they watch the Netflix movie History of the Eagles, which is a great movie if you haven't seen it, he was there. Yeah. He is. He is their manager. He's in that movie a lot. Uh, these are big names in entertainment. What is the benefit of Hamilton to them? Well, what's interesting about it is, is that this is a relationships business. And, and you know, I, I've got very good relationships with the folks at OVG um, and... And they wanted to, to, to work with me, and they knew that I had chosen to stay in Hamilton uh, instead of go back to the States. So, so they thought, okay, something must be happening here. And when they came and, and took a look around, um, they loved it. They saw the cranes in the sky. They saw we went to, we went to dinners a couple times uh, along King William. They, they just saw all the stuff that Leona is doing in the community. Like, it, it was, there was some excitement there. And, they, of course, they love um, the, the capacity of the existing arena, uh, because as you mentioned, Irving Azoff, uh, 
uh, has, has is manager to uh, a number of bands, including Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, uh, John Mayer, John Bon Jovi, Gwen Stefani, Harry Styles. I mean, the list goes on. And um, and so, you know, from a capacity standpoint, that was exciting to them. And it also allows them uh, sort of to kind of come in almost as a gateway, come into Canada um, and and work on a project here that, that, that they are excited about. And, uh, and then expand beyond that, perhaps, um, uh, in the future. But again, you know, when we take about, talk about these, this group, this OVG group, like, you know, keep in mind, this is the same group that is just renovating the key arena in Seattle uh, for an NHL team. They are, they, they are also building a new arena for the New York Islanders. I mean, they're spending $600 million in in Seattle. They're spending another $400 million uh, building a, a new NHL uh, state, uh, arena in uh, for the for the Islanders, um, you know these guys do things big, and um, and so we're really excited to be able to have that that alignment together, um, and 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 they're excited about what we're looking into and what our vision is for the city. Uh, we got to take a break here in a second, and I want to talk about the development side. But just so we're clear, uh, th- even though you just mentioned two NHL arenas, they are not thinking we're bringing an NHL team to Hamilton. We're not. We're not going down I mean, that road with them. No, I mean that's a great point. No, I mean, but you know they certainly have NHL experience. So you know they certainly you know uh, we've got Peter Luco in the mix as well, who was the, the president of the uh, the Flyers historically. Uh, he's he's uh, president of the Florida Panthers. Tim Iwicki, of course, you know, with AEG, had the Los Angeles Kings. I mean, they know this world very, very well. They certainly would know Michael Anlauer from the Board of Governors. Um, it's just, but no, there is no intention of bringing NHL uh, at this point to Hamilton. That's not, uh, that's not in the mix at the moment. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. When you're going to do this, this has to be involving more than just booking concerts. There is a dream or a vision or something physically for development. Would I be correct? Well, yeah. I mean, certainly the, the idea is um, initially, first and foremost, the, the first step in all of this is, to, um, is to, to be awarded the venue management agreement or contract the existing one currently with Spectra expires at the end of the year. Um, and so first and foremost is the, the you know, we want to lock in uh, venue management for the facility. Then we need to take a look at what are uh, the options in terms of second generation, next generation of these venues uh, or venues in, for the community. Um, and, and so, you know, we take a look at that. You know, they certainly, uh, they, they tend not to do things uh, small, OVG. Um, and, and I think that's what's exciting for them is, that both Carmen's group and I have a very big vision for, for the city, and, uh, and they're big vision people. And so they want to be part of uh, what we're looking to do. You did have, though, even when it was, as I understand it, even when it was, and I say just Carmen's, but you know what I mean, even when it was just Carmen's that sure. was going to be doing this, you had an idea. But now if you add OVG, do all those pieces of paper get torn up and you say, well, let's just start over again and shoot for the moon here because now the possibilities are much more endless? Well, it, it certainly has us, uh, you know, change our paradigm a little bit and think in, in different ways. The thing that's great about OVG, not only do they have, obviously, as, as I mentioned, the, 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 the artist management component, which no other venue management uh, company out there has, but they, they also come to the table with uh, extensive ability to drive corporate partnerships. Um, they, they, over, they have an alliance uh, of of 20, I think 26 or more 
uh, major arenas in North America where they do corporate partnership deals across all of them. So they did a $40 million deal with Walmart, for example, um, and spread the wealth among their venues. They have a great opportunity uh, just from corporate partnerships. But they also are, you know, they, they also look to, uh, to, to say, okay, well, here's a building that we've got currently that needs uh, some love, and, uh, and what can we do with that? Um, you know, being respectful that it's not necessarily going to be redone for an NHL team specifically, but what can we do? How do we make it so that uh, it can accommodate, um, uh, you know, concerts of, of the magnitude that, that we're talking about, but also be able to create an amazing atmosphere for Bulldogs fans and, and, uh, and, and the smaller shows as well, and all the other things that we do around, around the Bay and everything else that we do. What other amenities can we put in place that can be a, a, a great addition to uh, the city of Hamilton in these arenas. But I assume, and again, I'm jumping to a conclusion, but I assume that it would be way more than just looking at the arena. Um, I mean, you're not going to tell me all of your plans in the next two and a half minutes, but how big could this get? <laughs> I mean, honestly, like wh- no. when, you, when, you, when you lie there in bed and you're dreaming about it or the Mercantes are thinking about this, like how big could this thing get? Well, I mean... You know, it's, it's really pieces. I mean, when we talk about venue management first, then we need to take a look at, well, what do we need to do with the existing venues? Uh, convention center, new arena, renovated arena, what does that look like? And then beyond that, there's a, there's a private development piece as well, which can include, um, you know, uh, uh, residential and retail and condo development and all this other stuff that, that is also uh, possible in the downtown core. It has the... It has the um, you know, certainly an opportunity to really transform the landscape of downtown as we know it um, long term. That's not what we're looking for in the immediate. But long term, there's certainly a vision uh, of creating amazing things in the downtown core that's already come alive in, in, in the past few years, as you know, even more so. Um, so, yeah, there's a vision for, for something bigger, certainly. But we need to take a look at sort of the, the basics of what do we do from an arena standpoint? What do we do from a convention center, a convention center standpoint? All of those things are, are uh, real conversations that need to happen now. Uh, and then we can also sort of talk about bigger vision, uh, you know, condo development and all this other stuff uh, at some point. Uh, right now, the immediate, though, is venue management and then getting into the next phase. So if I understand correctly, then there is not an urgency at this very moment to go to council and say, give us these buildings and let us knock them down and rebuild our own thing. You're talking about, let's get in there, let's get sorted out, and then we'll go back to council a year, two, 18 months, whatever, down the road and pitch the big, big project. Well, I mean, I think there's there, it's definitely in two different um Two different tracks, though they, they, they kind of align, but they're really two different tracks. Um, for us, it's really, you know, I think the existing, um, are, are, you know, what do we do with the arena, for example, in terms of renovation or a new build or whatever? I think that conversation has to happen pretty quickly. I think we're, we're in that mindset. Um, but in terms of condo development and everything else, that, that's, a, that's a next phase. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in terms of what, what it looks like for the arena, you know, we need to kind of start having that conversation uh, in, in the immediate future. Even even potentially even potentially before a municipal election in the fall, or would it be after that? Would you think? Yeah, I mean, my personal thing is, you know, we're going to do it at at the, whatever timeline the city uh, mandates. But you know, we certainly feel like what we're going to bring to the table from a proposal standpoint is a feel-good election story. We feel like it really is going to be something because it's going to benefit the taxpayers. That's the whole thing that we've got in mind anyway from the beginning of this, uh, even before OVG. 
but even now, even more so with OVG, the mindset has been, how do we make this better for the taxpayer? How can we help uh, that piece of it? And, 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 and doing that in an election year, some would say, oh, you know, we, that's a little, oh, I don't know if we'd go there. We absolutely want to go there because we know it's going to be a great thing for the, for the taxpayers and as a result, a great thing for the politicians. I know we're going to be talking a lot more about this, but I, uh, for now, I really appreciate the time, Scott. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Guy. I really appreciate it. That is, Scott, War- yeah, that is Scott Warren, who is uh, now with the Carmen's Group. He used to be running Spectra, running the general managing Spectra uh, facilities here. It's a really interesting idea. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. My next guest has many talents, many areas of expertise. He's a really smart guy. But one of these, which happens to be particularly relevant right now, roughly a week into an election campaign with three weeks left until we vote, give or take a day or two, uh, is an ability, a proven ability to project election results, a predictive model that generally works. It's not spinning a wheel and running on chance. There is actually science and thought behind this. Um, His Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy has predictions for where votes are going to go and who's going to win which riding. And again, these have generally been pretty darn good. Now, of course, they're fluid. They can change. Things can happen in an election. Any candidate could say something really brilliant or incredibly stupid that could change this. This is merely a snapshot in time right now. But if the election was going to be held today, what would be happening here in the province of Ontario? Dr. Barry Kay is a political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. He joins me now. Uh, Dr. Kay, thanks for doing this today. Good evening, Scott. So I've pulled up your map. It's uh, I'll give the uh, email address and or the uh, web address in a moment. And if I look at this on May 14, 2008, at 6.33 p.m., I see a lot of orange in the north of Ontario in the big, big ridings. So not as many ridings, but a lot of them. And a lot of blue everywhere else. That's got to be indicative of something. Yeah, actually, it's that, that map really is, is out of date a bit, and we'll talk a little bit about how things are changing. Uh, we're going to have a new map up, I would hope, in the next day or so. Our tech person actually has been away for, um, for the last week, and uh, we have some new numbers. I'll, I'll talk about them in, in general terms in a moment. Uh, one thing about the map, though, um, because if people look at the map, the uh, website is lispop.ca, lispop.ca, that's the acronym for the institute that you mentioned. In addition to the provincial map, there's a number of regional maps. And indeed, one, as perhaps if one follows politics a bit, they'll know that it's the small urban ridings that the Liberals, and to a certain extent the NDP, do best in. Northern Ontario, the NDP also does very well, as you, as you mentioned. Whereas the rural ridings, which take up more space on the map, but each of them, you know, they tend to cover um, smaller towns with fewer people in them, so they, that's why they look bigger geographically on the map. Uh, that, that rural Ontario certainly is going to go solidly for the Conservatives. And the Conservatives usually win that area, even, even in elections, they don't do so well, like the last, the last provincial election. But look, the Conservatives, generally speaking, are still in good shape. But things are starting to change a little bit, and that's sort of what's interesting compared to the, the map that people will see if they look on it at the moment. I'm hoping that within the next day or so, we will have an update, and it will show that the uh, Conservatives are sliding a bit downward. Not so much in rural Ontario, but particularly in the GTA. The NDP is picking up seats, especially from the Liberals, um, because most of the NDP gains, not all, but most of the NDP seats, they're more likely to be in competition with the Liberals than they are with the Conservatives. 
But you're right. Um, historically, it's actually had a, a very good track record, let me say, with the exception of the last federal election. Uh, I've been doing this historically. I, I was a, an undergrad at McMaster uh, many years ago, and in fact, that's where I started playing with this. And over time, I'm, over the years, I uh, went to grad school and became a political science professor and so forth. But um, that indeed is something I've revised and played with over time. But at the federal level, we've gone back uh, almost 50 years, I guess 50 years, some 15, 16 elections. And at, over time, up until the last election, it was accurate to within four seats per party per election. Provincially, it's even a little better, but there's fewer seats provincially. It's more like three seats per party per election. And it's, it does have a good track record. It isn't necessarily perfect. And the one word I try to avoid in talking about it is the word predict, because predict talks about the future. And in fact, um, the information that this goes into this is based on polls that have happened in the past, the recent past, but um, the past nonetheless. So it's, as you pointed out, if the election were being held today and the overall poll numbers are reflective of the last six or seven polls that are going to be mentioned in the in this new update, we would see that the uh, conservatives would probably be in the range of the low 70s in terms of seats. Uh, the NDP would be second, around 30, and the end, and the liberals are down just a little bit over 20. Those well, are, what are, is yeah, what is really striking about this map? And again, I know it's going to be updated, so things could be changed. But what is really striking about this map is almost the complete absence of any red on it anywhere. Well, there actually is some red. Um, in fact, you'll note on that map that the uh, the Thunder Bay seats are the one area of northern Ontario where the Liberals had big margins last time, and it looked uh, as of uh, a month ago that they would hold them, but frankly, I think they're in trouble there now, too. Where the Liberals are in better shape are urban seats, and the urban seats are pretty small. Uh, but in fact, you will find seats in the downtown and central part of Toronto, uh, ridings like uh, St. Paul's, ridings like Eglinton-Lawrence, ridings like uh, University um, Rosedale where the Liberals are actually competitive, also Ottawa-Vanier. There are some Liberal seats around. And indeed, uh, well, one of the features, of course, is that the, each riding is color-coded. Any seat that has a, a margin, as we've projected, we have an algorithm based on looking at averaging the polls and weighting the polls and then applying it to the voting history of the riding. And that's a little trickier this time, too, because so many, there's so many new ridings. But that any seat where we project a margin of less than a 5% will actually not appear in one of the party colors, but will appear gray. And there's a lot of gray, especially around the GTA, and the, including parts of Toronto, Scarborough, Brampton, Mississauga. A good number of those seats that are gray are probably headed for the Liberals as well at the moment. But the Liberals are sliding a bit. So and can you see, could you see, and we've we got to take a break in a second here, but could you see, based on the map you're looking at right now, a path back to power for Kathleen Wynne? That's a stretch. Um, not because it couldn't happen. Frankly, anything can happen in the next three weeks. Uh, 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 Doug Ford could sort of come out and run around naked or go into some sort of drug addiction program like other members of his family. I'm not saying crazy things couldn't happen. It's, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, the trouble with um, Kathleen Wynne is that I think people have made up their minds. And that part of the reason I think we're starting to see a rise with the NDP is that people that are unhappy and disenchanted with Wynne but aren't impressed with Doug Ford either for other reasons are starting to give um, uh, uh, Andrea Horvath a real a look. And that's part of the reason why the NDP's catapulted into second. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. You have mentioned that this map, which is going to be updated shortly, and it's on their website about projections and the race for 2018, is showing or will be showing some momentum for the NDP. Uh, it, is the gap... 
right now is the gap at a point where it could really realistically significantly be closed considerably, or is this about just shrinking the majority at this moment that you would look at? Um, if I was betting, I would say it's more likely to shrink the majority, but goodness, anything can happen. And when you ask the question, is it possible? Anything's possible. Anything is possible. 19, uh, 1990. Uh, the NDP came out of nowhere and actually formed a majority government, um, even though the polls during most of the election didn't indicate that at all. Things, things could happen. I think uh, Doug Ford has to blow it. Now, let me say, just as I don't think this is a particularly unique uh, insight, but I think that uh, Christine Elliott would have been a much safer candidate for the um, progressive conservatives had she won the leadership rather than uh, Doug Ford. Doug Ford uh, comes off, I think, and this is apparent on the debates, is just stiff. He's not experienced, and indeed he, go, he sort of falls back on basic slogans. He doesn't seem nearly as, as knowledgeable about detail of policy. He talks about cutting, uh, cutting taxes, but it has is, is so far avoided any sense of explaining where that would come from. Those comments may come back to haunt him, and indeed things could, could change at the moment, though. Your, your question was, what, what I think is the most likely at the moment, I would suggest a conservative majority, but one, certainly a majority is a majority, and that means they can control the government agenda for the next four years, but not nearly as dramatic as one would see in the projection that's on our website at the moment, and that, that goes back, uh, back to mid, mid-April when, in fact, the Conservatives had an even bigger lead, and we projected them to win something like 80 seats across the province. At the moment, we are going to have them in the low 70s. See, I always wonder when I hear about momentum in an election, and we hear about momentum all the time, and and I often wonder, is it really the kind of momentum that we're hearing about, or do we have an awful lot of people in my profession, and I'll, I'll put the spotlight on, on my profession, that are looking, saying, man, we got three weeks left until the election. If this thing is over now... What do we talk about? Let you know. So there's got to be something. So let's have momentum. I mean, I, I've never, I, I don't know. Sometimes if the, a little bit can turn into a lot, or if it's just the way it's played. You know, we, the, my first experience with the term momentum actually comes comes from football games, where in fact, if you recover a fumble, you've got momentum. Right. Um, in terms of public opinion, it does mean something. I think a little bit more significant, because public opinion does tend to move in waves. And you have momentum, of course, until you don't. And other in, you know, intervening events can come in and interfere with that and indeed may end the situation. At the moment, I think a number of people that weren't previously inclined that way are giving Andrea Horvath a look. That doesn't mean that, in fact, she is going to be able to maintain the support she has now. But it does generally suggest that with public opinion, that once people start giving you a chance more people are likely to come along. That certainly can and will change if, in fact, she makes a mistake or one of the other party candidates does something to sort of to, to challenge that. But you had an earlier question about Kathleen Wynne. My sense of Kathleen Wynne, I don't think she's been such a bad premier. Nonetheless, I think it, it, it's pretty obvious that people are ready. It's time for change. Um, the, the liberals have been in for four elections. When we look historically at the, at the provincial governments, Two terms in and two terms out isn't a bad record. That's normally what happens. Usually after two terms, people are looking for a change. The liberals have had four, four terms, and um, we're, we're at a situation now, and there have been scandals, not all necessarily to be laid at Kathleen Wynne's feet, but nonetheless, there have been scandals. People are ready for a change. I, I don't think there are a lot of people who aren't already supporting the liberals that are likely going to move toward her, and I, I don't think the fact that the liberals are likely to rebound is very great. The question then becomes, are people happy with the conservatives under Ford? Is the next government, or are they looking for an alternative? And more are starting to look in that direction, but I still think it's going to take some real blunders and mistakes by Doug Ford to basically 
push the NDP ahead or even to lessen the likelihood of a conservative majority. There is one other thing. Uh, there's a lot of other things, but there's one other thing we have time for today that uh, I note on your map, and it's and it's something that I, I don't know if it's significant or not, and that is there are a lot of uh, riding boundary changes that happened prior to this election. Does that impact a lot, or is that Mm, whatever. I mean, it's not going to make a big difference. No, it, it can matter. Um, and indeed, where the, uh, the the new ridings disproportionately are in growth areas. Hamilton has some, and Ottawa has some, but Toronto has more. So particularly in areas, not so much in the city of Toronto, but in the 905 areas around it, the York region, particularly Brampton, Mississauga, that's where a lot of those ridings are. Those are the swing ridings, and quite frankly, those are the ridings that are going to probably determine whether the Conservatives or anybody else is going to get a majority. If one party can swing that area, um, and sweep that area really, the, the Liberals did quite well throughout that area back in 2014. If that area moves massively to another party, or perhaps could re- re- be retained by the Liberals, that will probably determine the outcome. Uh, the, the, the Conservatives are certainly going to hold the seats in that blue belt you mentioned earlier, the rural and small town Ontario, the smaller cities. But it's in the 905 especially, um, particularly I would suggest between Oakville and, um, and Oshawa, where in fact the likelihood of a Conservative majority is to be held. Now a lot of those writings, if you look at our map right now, are gray. Um, and when you sort of, I, I don't want to oversimplify it, but it, there's a few where the NDP is competitive, but a lot of them are liberal conservative races. And in our projection, we probably have about half of them liberal, half of them conservative. So even though there isn't a lot of red on the map, a lot of those gray ridings we would probably be counting as liberal ridings as well. Um, that indeed, it's, that's the area that I think the leaders are probably going to be campaigning in heavily. But there are certainly competitive areas. Hamilton West, I, I think the, uh, the NDP seats in Hamilton are probably fairly safe. Hamilton West looks conservative. Uh, the, um, the Ancaster, the Flamborough area, those, those seats are also um, likely to, uh, to be you know, held by the conservatives. But there are other seats, the gray ones around the province, which is really where the, the competition is going to be focused. Dr. Barry Kay from Wilfrid Laurie. Uh, the website is maps.lispop, L-I-S-P-O-P dot C-A. You yeah, actually, d- just start with lispop.ca and good. then look at the subset map. Appreciate your time today. Thanks Have so much. Chat. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Uh, that is Don Robertson, by the way. He is the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys. He also um, does some real estate. <laughs> with Calm Choice Realty in Dundas. And he does a bunch of other stuff as well. Um, you were at the uh, Bulldogs game on Wednesday. You weren't able to make it last night, but you, you kept up. You saw that. Yeah. Watched some of it on a, sport, on a on a open house on a private lake, but I watched it. The Sportsnet had it, so yeah, didn't look good to nothing. And uh, But Wednesday's game, to me, uh, the only game I saw of the series, it, it was clear to me that the Bulldogs were the better team. It's funny, the, the, the coach of the Sioux Greyhounds. He's a sore loser. He came across as a sore loser. Yeah. He, did, he really did, and it's unfortunate because they Great were... Players hurt, blah, blah, blah. Crimea River. They're, look, they're a great team. They were the top team in Canada from opening day of the season all the way through. It, uh, I've said it before, it was almost seen as their birthright that they were going to win this and go to the Memorial Cup. And so, on the one hand... I feel for the guy in that sense that it's when you've been expected to be that and it's been almost, you've been told since day one that this is what you're going to do. I understand how disappointing that would be. I really do. I can get that that would be really hard. But when another team, as you say, has played better and has beaten you fair and square and you say, well, 
we had to play really hard teams to get here. They didn't have to play anybody, and we had injuries, and they didn't have injuries. And, and nobody was sore or hurt playing with a cracked ankle. They have, he has no idea. That was just a butt covering. He's just covering his butt because when you're the number one rated team in Canada all year and you get beat in six and went seven to – Kitchener Rangers were a good team. But to go seven against Owen Sound exposed some warts. And uh, the Bulldogs full marks. Wow. Well, look, I want to go. I'm just pulling it up here because I just want to double check that I've got this right. But I know I do. The the Sioux Greyhounds, yes, they had two seven-game series before Hamilton. And that definitely did not help them. I mean, there's no question that, that you, you go into that kind of a grind. That's not going to help you. But, and I'm just pulling it up here so I have my numbers exactly correct, but with Owen Sound, they played two. At, Owen Sound beat them 6-2 and 7-1. That's what I just wanted to confirm. At least twice in that series, the Sioux didn't even bother to show up. They were horrible. The best team in Canada did not even bother to show up. Well, if you show up and you get beaten and it's a close game and you go, oh, man, they got us. That's one thing why we go seven games. But if you don't show up and you give games away, you can't then complain that you've got these long seven-game series because you could have done what Hamilton did and dealt with them quicker. The other, It's on them. The other thing that happens when you get blown out like that and you give yourself extra games and, you're, and you are, by all evidence, the superior team in the series, especially in the early series, is you expose yourself to injuries. You never, you know how many people have come up to me and say, you guys lost because you wanted another home game. No, we don't want to expose our athletes to getting hurt. Win and get all, off the ice. It, just win it as fast as you can. You never play the gate, although sometimes it's when you're paying the bills, it's a lot of fun. But the reality is you're susceptible to injuries. Every time something stupid can happen, guy steps on a puck, breaks his ankle, slides into the boards. It's always that extra game that kills you. So finish somebody off. So when you don't show up for two, shame on you. Yeah, you know what? They could have, if, if they had wanted to, if they had showed up, they could have had those series perhaps a little bit shorter. And then, well, I'm not going to argue, Kings, uh, Kitchener was a great team, and that was a tough series they had to play against Kitchener. That was a really tough series they had to play against Kitchener. I wish I wish the Hamilton Bulldogs could have played Kitchener. I'm telling you, there would have been 14,000 yep. people there Sunday. Cost uh, Mike Landar a lot of money to have to play the suit, forgetting about taking the boys up on an airplane. Well, honestly, other than Sudbury... The Sioux was probably the worst team as far as being able to draw fans. Because if it had been Niagara, Mississauga, uh, I mean, take your pick, anyone around yeah. here, any, um, Kitchener, Kitchener, London, any of those would have brought people to Hamilton for the finals. The Sioux had some people there, but I talked to a bunch. Almost everyone that I talked to who was wearing a Sioux Greyhounds lives uniform here. lives here. They had some tie to yeah. the Sioux, whatever, but they didn't travel down from the Sioux. You don't. There was not a. No. There weren't uh, tons of people. If you had played Niagara or, as you say, Kitchener or somewhere else, you would have well, had... Well, they couldn't play Niagara, but they could have played Kitchener. No, I understand. But I'm just saying any of the yeah. teams around here, you would have, for that championship, you would have brought in two, three, four thousand more from the visiting team and vice versa. Yeah. They'd open they'd opened up the second deck on Wednesday if it was Kitchener. Well, they did. They did open it on Wednesday. There were maybe a hundred people up there, but... Yeah, but was, there'd have been a few thousand if there it was Kitchener. There would have. But l- let me go to this for a second because this is... How big is this for Hamilton? I mean, winning winning in June is the first time in 42 years, so obviously you say, well, that's a big deal, but is it? what's it comparable to? Is it comparable to winning a Calder Cup? Is it comparable to winning a Grey Cup? Is it comparable to winning a Vanier Cup? What, what, where would you put it in the 
pecking order of sporting achievements. Well, it's interesting. When you talk about those things, the Calder Cup, when, when, when you win the biggest, tro- biggest trophy and or the biggest championship that's available to you at your level, it's a big deal. Mac wins the Vanier Cup. It's a huge deal. Can't do better. That's right. So they're all have their own category of absolute ex- excellence. But hockey is because we're Hamilton, because we're Canada and everything else, I think is always a bigger deal. I believe, but don't, you ask me what I think, so there's no scientific evidence of this. It's a bigger deal to win a Memorial Cup than it will be a Calder Cup because it's a Canadian championship. Well, there's also a lot more teams. And and the, to win a Calder Cup, you're at the mercy of your parent club. I mean, the Hamilton Bulldogs are on their own here. Steve Steos, of, with all the moves he made, and we talked about them, and I said before I'll trust Steve Steos because he knows his club and the league a lot better than than I certainly do or, or a lot of people do. It's been a long time since a guy I've seen a guy make that many trades and have absolutely every one of them seemingly work out. None of them backfired. Like all the significant trades he did all made big contributions to the victory. And boy, he looks like an absolute genius. It's something that I was going to be asking him about down the road. But, you know, um, Kyle Dubas just got the Maple Leafs general manager job, 32-year-old guy, who started in the Sioux. Yes, he did. And and, Leafs guy. But never won in the Sioux was never able to put together a team that was good enough to win the OHL championship with the Sioux Greyhounds. It did dawn on me as I was watching this over the last week that I wonder if putting this team together this fast will put Steve Steos in the discussion with any NHL teams, even as an assistant general manager, to say, here's a young guy, because he's still a young guy, he's still only 42, 43, 44, here's a young guy that we may want to bring into the fold and groom a little bit, because he's obviously got some talent at this. Well, he's and he's also been exposed to the NHL level. Like he worked for the Leafs. Yeah, he, I mean, he wasn't there long. He was a player for 1,001 games, and he had a year and a half or maybe two as a player development consultant, yeah, but which he, I don't even know what that is, to be honest, but he was around the team and he was involved in management. But he was in the room. Yes. When the conversations were going on, yes. what do we do with the guy with the Marlies? What do we do with this guy? What do you think of this trade? He's been in those conversations. So it's not like he just put his stamp on the Hamilton Bulldogs. He put his he put his uh, he put a stamp on the Hamilton Bulldogs after playing in the OHL after playing seven hundred thousand games in the NHL. But he's been in the discussions in an NHL operation, which gives them a leg up on what uh, Dubas had. And now Dubas is general manager of the most historic franchise in the National Hockey League. I I, I really I mean it is something that I wonder, and I, I'm not going to ask Steos right now because I know what the answer is going to be. I'm worried about the Memorial Cup. Yeah. He's not going to give me an answer, so I'm not even going to waste my we time. We got something to build here. Our work's not done. And, but you know. and and I don't I don't I don't believe that at this point that he is. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't believe he's out there trolling with his lure in the water, trying to trying to go and land that job. But I'm wondering if an NHL team who notices this and they notice everything would go, hmm, maybe we should at least sit down with him and have a coffee. And I, and that it may be too soon, but I go back to when he took over this team, and it was really only two years ago because George Burnett was the guy for the first year. This was a team that was spare parts 
for all intents and purposes. There was not a lot here. He's basically taken a team that missed the playoffs and in two years turned it into a champion. That is, I mean, you've done, you've, you've been behind the, the general manager desk. You know, that is really hard to do. Especially when it's hard at that level when there's so much drafting and trading and, and and it's different at the levels I've always been at because they're free agents and you just go get them, but these guys have to build it and you have to give something up to get something and they traded the the guy they drafted the first round to get a guy that probably was a difference maker. Like I said, he made all the right choices. And it's not like once upon a time when you could anticipate that five or six of the general managers in this league were dummies who just were there because. Whatever they, they were owner, friends of the owner. Whatever some of them, they are. I would say eighteen or nineteen of the guys who are in the league now are all really, maybe more, are really smart hockey guys. Teams can't afford now to have a goofball as the guy running their team. You just can't afford to do it. You've got to have a smart hockey guy. So it's not like you're fleecing somebody who just you know just showed up. The biggest thing that happened uh, for the Hamilton Bulldogs franchise on Sunday afternoon is it uh, it legitimized them as a top-shelf OHL team. Uh, okay, let me go to that, because there's two things I wanted to ask you about that, about legitimizing it. That one first. This, is this something, do you believe that now, if you're the parent of a 16-year-old kid who gets drafted and is debating, oh, do I go NCAA or do I go OHL, does this change that? Absolutely. I mean, they. I mean, the first year, I, I could never understand why they, they put the kids in Ancaster High School and practice at the quad pad when Morgan Firestone Arena is across the road. They fixed that right away. So they've got them living in, uh, from a real estate standpoint, the most expensive part of the city of Hamilton, which would tell you it's the most affluent. And uh, whether that's good or bad, it's a fact. I think the when it, when I say legitimize, it gives them a leg up on all kinds of franchises. It puts them now, in my opinion, at the level of the London Knights and, and the Kitchener Rangers as a, we better at least have a conversation with them. They don't the have Hamilton to do Bulldogs. it twice or, or at least be great again next year, even if they don't win to, to get to that point? You think they've already done it? I, I would imagine the way Steve Steos talked and the way Michael Andelar talks, those kids are treated second to none when it comes to billeting and taking care of them. It's been a long time since I've heard of an OHL team having a charter to take them to a road game. And they'd have been in the air Sunday flying over top of the Greyhounds bus to play the home game. And well, the Greyhounds were going to fly for the last game, but, but were I, your they? point, yeah, but your point is, your point is well taken. The Bulldogs, First class. the Bulldogs flew for game for, uh, flew up there for game five and flew back while the Greyhounds drove. So it is, um, it is. And I think that if you have, if there's anything that the Bulldogs have now as a sales pitch, it's, I've talked to a, a, a significant enough number of the parents of players who all rave about this team. Well, all you got to do is if you draft you a player, go. have five parents call up and say, let me tell you about what my son had here. I, I mean, look, I, I, I agree that they are definitely on that path to what you're talking about. Absolutely. I don't know if they're there yet, but they are definitely on the right path towards that. Let me tell you why I think they're there. Because you're talking about 16-year-old kids and their parents, which would be far younger than, than I am, and we live in a world of, inst- of them. instant gratification. 
right? These kids want answers now. They pick up their iPhone and they want an answer. They want to tweet. They want to know what's going on today. They're not concerned about uh, Seinfeld 20 years ago. They're concerned about what's on TV tonight. Are you dissing my quiz question already? Man, okay, well, continue. There aren't. Let me let me put it in perspective. How many of the Hamilton Bulldogs were alive the last time Seinfeld was uh, on TV? Three. There you go. So, but y- you get what I'm saying? I don't think it takes a long time to build that credibility. No, although it, it's very easy to lose it. It it may not be there. Well, they won't lose it. No, no, I, I'm not suggesting they've lost it. I'm saying it's it, it, you can build yep. it, but it's easy to take a step back as well. You look at a team like London, and I know that London has been the model that everyone wants to build at, and London is perpetually a good team, perpetually it's a, got the full arena. There's a lot there that you, they're the centerpiece of the community in a lot of ways. It's There's a lot well, they're to the like. the biggest team in town. Yeah, there's a lot to like. And they're far enough away from Toronto and Detroit Huge. not to get gobbled up into Huge. the Toronto Maple Leafs and Toronto Blue Jays. They're a big enough city to be a standalone city, same as Owen Sound and a lot of them, right? The, the one that amazes me a little bit is the Ottawa 67s that still seem to thrive with an NHL team in town. So when we yeah. get our NHL team next year. So is that the prediction now? That may not be next year. All right. The other part of this, though, I asked about that, but the other part is there were 8,600 roughly people there the last two games, and I've said this before, I said it on the air, I don't think that any of them, based on those two games, would have left the arena. I mean, Wednesday the Bulldogs lost, but it was an it was a terrific game. I mean, it was a great game. They could have won it. They could have won. They should have won. won it in the last 19 seconds. They should have won. They could have won. It was a terrific game, though, and Sunday they did win. I don't think there's a person who left that arena and said, you know, that was horrible. I am never coming back to see one of these again. It, it was. They did the best possible sales job on the ice that they could possibly do. And I'm wondering if that carries over, if in the fall – it shows up in the attendance, even if it's by two or 300 a game on average, or if this is just, hey, it was great in May last year when they were going for a championship. Call me next time they're in a championship. The um, If they win a Memorial Cup, it should be worth between three and 500 season tickets to them. You think so? I think so. I think, well, they got to go out and sell them and market it. One of the things that I, I found interesting uh, at the game Wednesday is that for all the warts that Cops Coliseum has, or First Ontario Place has, when you get a nice crowd in there all wearing the yellow t-shirts or Sunday having the towels and everything else, there isn't anybody walking out of there going, this building sucks. I'm never coming back because of the building. No, when the lower bowl is full, it's a great place to watch a game. Absolutely. Uh, or the whole place is full. But I yes. said, for all the warts it's gone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure it has the fewest private boxes almost of anybody in the league, which is unfortunate, but that's it is what it is. But nobody's walking out of there saying, well, I'm not going back to that hole again. Or I'd never go unless it was a game seven or they were in the finals. It's a lot of fun to watch a hockey game when the building's full. Last night when the referee made a call that was unpopular with the crowd, and there were a few, or actually it was didn't make a call or combination of both, I will say that it was very funny because it was so Hamilton and yet not Hamilton simultaneously. You understand what I'm saying? The whole crowd together, without any prompting, nobody was putting it up on the scoreboard or anything, just started chanting, Ref, you suck. Ref, you suck. And I thought, this is hilarious because, yes, it's kind of Hamilton because you do that at Ticat games. You scream at the refs and you say, Argos suck and all that kind of stuff. But oftentimes, sometimes they have to yell, hey, make some noise or put the thing up there. This was just a... 
naturally occurring fit of peak that the fans had. But again, even if you're saying, well, that's not a very nice thing to say. The fact is, if you're in that arena and everyone's doing it together and you're all in this communal community kind of thing, it's a great thing to watch and it can be a great arena. The issue that Bulldogs have is how do you, you're not going to get to that number. You're not going to get 8,600 every game all the time. Maybe someday, but it's going to be not next fall. How do you get closer and closer and closer to the five and a half thousand, six thousand that actually takes that bowl and makes it a pretty good place with pretty good atmosphere. You uh, you get on your season ticket people. You get on your people in the office and say, now we're going to sell this. We're going to try and capture some of the magic that we've had because that's the last game going to be at Cops this year. Yep. And I'm sure they are already starting to get on the phone and, talk, and renew season tickets. I'd have the biggest season ticket special they've ever had available, and I'd start it this week, And um, which is probably why I'm not in marketing because I don't know if they will, but they should. They should try and build on the last two home games they've had because they have been pretty spectacular. Something else, too, that I was thinking about Sunday while I was working and had, a, had Sportsnet on in the background, I, you know, I'm going, gee, if Kitchener was there, which we've already talked about, I wonder how many people that having it live on Sportsnet cost them as walk-up people because you could sit at home and watch it. Could have been. Now, that said, I, I was obviously at the game. I was working. How did Hamilton look when it's portrayed on Sportsnet then with that kind of crowd? Does it look like Hamilton's a hockey market? Yeah, it looked great. It was great. It was an easy sell. It looked like the place to be. But, and that's what you, that's what you want it to look but like. But I think you're over 10,000 people if it's not on Sportsnet. But and I, if it's not on Mother's Day and if earlier if it wasn't a weekday. Day. If they if they had instead of having and again, I'm not making excuses for them, it's the reality of we know. We know what happens with ticket sales in this city. If that had been a Friday night or a Saturday night as opposed to a Wednesday, a Monday and a Sunday of Mother's Day, I think you probably have another 1,000 or 2 people in there as well. But that's, you know, that's, that's the way the thing drew. That's, that's yeah. what you got. And they still, as I say, they filled it and they had the biggest crowds of the OHL for the playoffs. No, no team had bigger crowds this year for, for those two games. So good for them. Good for them. It'll be, it'll be really interesting to see if it's going to stick. Yeah. If when the fall comes, if when the first few games roll around, is there 1,500 people in there or are there suddenly 4,000 early and six or six and a half thousand as the season goes on? That's that's when you'll know that this thing made a difference. If it's six, six or six and a half thousand, they're sure a lot of it's going to depend on their team too, because they've got just a couple guys leaving. Well, it could be more than that because it depends on who's going to make the NHL. Like maybe 10. Uh, well, it, this team could be very similar or very different. Again, it depends on, and that's not trying to be obtuse. It depends on yep. how many guys make an NHL team, how many guys go to the AHL, there's a lot of pieces. There's only three guys. There's three overagers that have to be gone. The rest could be back, most of them, because mm-hmm. they they'd have too many overagers. They'll have to move some. But anyway, it was uh, it was good. Fr- Friday night, 10 o'clock on Sportsnet will be the Bulldogs' first Memorial Cup game. They play the host Regina Pats. Regina has not been on the ice in a game. It'll be 47 days since they played a game because they got eliminated early. This should be... This should be good for the Bulldogs, but we'll see. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Uh, Don, let's turn to basketball for a minute. And uh, 
only because I'm 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 intrigued by what the bull oh, the bulldogs now got the bulldogs in the brain what the Raptors did by firing Dwayne Casey. And I want to ask you a couple of things because again you've you've been a coach you've been a GM you've worked in this not in basketball as far as I know but uh, they did two things that I found very odd that I want your opinion on the first is they. First of all, just firing him. You 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 win fifty nine games. You voted coach of the year by the other coaches. You get beaten by maybe the best player of all time on at least one of the games on a shot that if you gave him that shot twenty five times again, he might hit it twice. And there were other games. I mean, that's not the only reason, but we'll start there. What about just what about even firing him? Was it his fault? To, I mean, is it is it right that 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 he takes the fall? Is it his is it on him that they couldn't get over the hump or is it on his players who his best players kind of stunk to join out? I think it's, to me, in, in the last game they played to get blown out when you're supposed to be the best team, um, the players were sending a message thinking, we're not beating LeBron and Cleveland anyway, so we're going to mail this one in and put it on Casey. So I think the players were sending the GM a message that, we're not playing for him. I, I, how else can you? Well, I didn't know if see, get I, around that, and I think Messiah Jerry. Yeah, Messiah Jerry. It, from what I've heard and read, he and Casey got into it two or three times during the C series, and in the heat of the moment, you're judged on playoff success. Ask the coach from the Sioux, and you know what? When you're the team that's supposed to win. And you get blown out four straight. Somebody's got to pay a price again, again. again. Like it's not the first time. But here's what complicates life. Okay, they fired uh, Casey. Now you start looking for a coach, and the best coach available is Dwayne Casey. That's the trick. Now you become Harold Ballard with Roger Nielsen. Who <laughs> can you come back and wear a bag. bag over your head? It's happening. Well, it's been asked in that city before. That's that was even before Seinfeld was on. Um, I think I think they may have painted themselves into a corner. Well, they've got some guys. There are some people on their farm system. Well, Stackhouse, Jerry Stackhouse, nine hundred five. Yeah, yeah. So there's some guys that you could that you could go to. But to me, it's a. I mean, I understand that coaches are hired for the purpose of being fired ultimately, and that's a cliche, but it's true. But it was his players. It was DeMar DeRozan who was just awful. It was Kyle Lauer who had moments, but for 30 million bucks a year, you darn well sure should have moments. The, his players let him down. And I, you know, I know that again, you're a coach, you're a disposable asset, but man, it seems cold to gas a guy because the players dropped the ball quite literally. They did. And... You, I know because of the business you're in, you've heard it before. Well, we can't fire the whole team. I know. And coaches are hired to be fired. And, you know, the. I mean, how close was Paul Maurice to getting the can tied to him a couple times in Winnipeg? And now right. he's up one nothing. So that that's the first part. And that's fine. That's, you know, they decide to fire him and so be it. We're going we're gonna to fire the guy. He had the best year in team history, whatever. But then you, the day before, at the day after the season, but the day before you fire him, you make him go up and talk to the media and be the guy who's going to get flayed 
with questions about how bad everything was. You force this guy to sit there and take the slings and arrows. That to me was, Masai Ujiri has not made many missteps as GM of the team. That was an inexcusable situation that he did. Because here's the thing. He didn't hire a coach the day after. He didn't hire him either. No, but he didn't hire a coach the day after Casey was fired, which would indicate that you've got to move really fast to get rid of the guy so I can get my next person. And I understand you could say, well, I want to give Dwayne Casey loads of time to find a new job. Fair enough. But the playoffs aren't even done yet. To make the guy go up there and sit there and absorb the abuse when you can make a solid case that the reason that team lost is because the team Masai Jerry built wasn't good enough. That to me was, was an inexcusable action from a general manager who should be ashamed of that one. That was bad. That tells me though, or, or kind of confirms what I alluded to earlier, is that they had a real problem in that last series. They they weren't getting along. They weren't agreeing on systems. They weren't agreeing on what to do with LeBron. I don't know if anybody can stop him, but they, they, they certainly weren't on the same page. So he, he's sitting there going, you know what, you go take the heat. What it's done, though, it's now put the heat on the GM. He now has one foot in the bucket because you just fired a coach that a lot of people like and by all accounts is an outstanding guy. But now you get rid of a guy that just set a team record for wins and points. The next play you make better be a good one or he's closer to the door. But even if you've disputed or had disagreements in the playoffs, even if you've had a shouting match about how you're going to defend LeBron, even if it's gotten heated between the two of you, that is a professional dispute about strategy in a game. We're not talking about one guy sleeping with another guy's wife or punching him in the face or something that is a personal thing. It didn't even come out, that stuff. Well, there's nothing to that. No, but there's nothing about that. Like, there's nothing. No, but I know, but there's no, I just want to make sure people at home don't think that, you know. I was going to say I was kidding. There's nothing that we know of that was personal, and yet making him go out there and face that was a personal, it almost comes across as a vindictive thing. You lost, fine. You're going to go, and you're going to get hammered on. And that, to me, was, if you're going to fire the guy, you fire him the day after, and you say, all right, you want to you take, I'm here, I'll take the, yep. the shots. Or That's or, what Brian Burke would have done. Or you let... Dwayne Casey go up there and take the crap, but then you wait a week at least before you fire him. So it doesn't look like, all right, you've now taken enough punishment. Now you're fired too. So I'm going to humiliate you twice in the span of two days. I, I, I was really surprised at Ujiri, who generally, as I say, has not made many missteps. I was, I was, I was surprised at that one. And I thought it doesn't look, it's not a good look on him. It's not a good look on any general manager. I wouldn't want any general manager to do that. No, you. Um, it's not like Dwayne Casey went up and said, you know, if we'd have made the two trades I wanted him to make, we'd have got by Cleveland. What if he had said that? Same same result. Well. You get fired. You just feel a little better about it. It is. But it's a lot harder to get hired. When you go out as a coach and say the GM's a jerk, boy, it's tough. Do you remember, um, God bless him, John Muckler? Yep. And Ted Nolan and yep. Buffalo, they yep. both ended up on, the, got the can yeah, tied to yep. that. You mentioned, and I agree, Dwayne Casey by every, I didn't cover the Raptors, by every person who wrote about him, talked about him, spoke about him, 
a great, classy, respectful, good person. Yes. There was nobody, there was not one thing that I read or heard that suggested that Dwayne Casey was anything other than a terrific human being. That was not what a guy like him deserved. No. You, you, you um, when you get a good guy, and you know what? I, I always said, uh, I think we're starting our 19th season next year, and only once have I not had a coach back because oftentimes when I see- Well, often you're the coach. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Which makes me an idiot, as anybody that knows me will attest to. But what it what it it, it does is is it just it complicates things, and it and it's an admission you made a mistake when you hired him. Again, uh, Messiah didn't hire him as a coach; he inherited him and kept him and gave him extensions. But because he earned it. Absolutely. He wasn't carrying him. The guy was the guy was coaching every every year but one out of his seven, I think. He had, he did better than the year before. Everybody always knows though when a GM comes in and inherits a coach, the first firing's a freebie. Mm-hmm. The second one's on you. So I'm telling you that this guy has now got one foot in the bucket. You fire a guy that's won forty nine games or fifty nine games for you, you better make a substantial Upgrade in coaching, and good luck to that. The other guy, though, that I really think that is, I don't know what becomes of him, is DeMar DeRozan, because for two playoffs now, he has disappeared. When it really counted, this guy who is supposedly your best player has disappeared. And in the NBA, where it is a star league, it is a superstar league, you've got to have a superstar to compete he has shown himself that he is not a superstar, at least not in the playoffs. He's not a guy who's going to carry your team. And at that point, do you say, we want to keep paying this guy $30 bucks a year, or is there a different route you want to take? And I don't know what the answer to that is. but Your superstars have to go to the next level in the playoffs. Sure they do. They Look at Ove- Ovi. Ovechkin's done that this year. He finally got by Pittsburgh. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Don, is our... Well, we were just watching before the break. Uh, ben Sherratt, Hamilton guy. Last Hamiltonian standing in the NHL playoffs, the Stanley Cup playoffs. He was just being interviewed. Are the Jets now the team that everyone is cheering for? I mean, in Canada? Or do we not do that anymore? Do we not do that last Canadian team allegedly gets to be the fan favorite. I think it's Canada's team for the remainder of the NHL playoffs. See, I'm they don't do it if it was Vancouver. If it's like Vancouver? Yeah, but that's okay. They're not even really part of Canada. <laughs> but people were not jumping on the Vancouver. And Ottawa, nobody jumped outside of Ottawa. Nobody jumped on the Ottawa bandwagon. And if it's Montreal, you can be darn sure nobody west of Toronto or in Toronto or west are cheering for Montreal. It seems to me there are like two or three benign Canadian cities that you can cheer for. Okay, I mean, you can cheer for Winnipeg. Who's, who's Winnipeg ever upset? They'd go to, Ed, they'd go to Edmonton. Edmonton and Calgary. When Calgary yep. had their last big run and they had the Red Mile, it seemed like everybody was fine with Calgary. Those seem to be the three. The middle teams seem to be the ones that, nah, we're okay with that. Nobody's upset. The other ones, nobody's cheering for Montreal unless you're a Montreal fan, are they? Or Ottawa or, I say, well, Montreal, Toronto. Montreal for sure. Toronto, if I mean outside of Toronto, there's Toronto fans all over. But if you're not a Toronto fan, you really are not jumping on the Toronto bandwagon. No, that's for sure. It's it it's I'm ambivalent of who wins. I mean, I was talking to a guy the other day about it, and I they said you're cheering for Winnipeg, and I said, you know what? It's hard to cheer against Vegas. 
Vegas is a wonderful story. I, I like, you know, and they have more Canadians than any other team. If you're cheering for the truly Canadian team, Vegas has more Canadians than any. They have 18 Canadians on that roster. You think Don Cherry's not going to be all over that? Good Canadian kids right there. Yeah, the, um, <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> they, uh, I, I'd be fine to see Ovi and uh, Vegas in the final. I mean, I, I don't care. I mean, I, if it's Tampa Bay, I mean, I, I think I'd like to see Washington there just because they haven't been there forever. Well, I, I, I may be a bad person, but I, I've kind of now come to the point where I think it's a kind of a compelling story that Ovechkin becomes the Dan Marino of the NHL and has a terrific career and never wins a cup. It's almost become a a, a storyline. I don't know. I, I, yeah, again, you're a, I, I, don't, I don't hate Ovechkin. I just... You're, you're a bad person. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I would rather have... Well, that's not... I would rather have Tampa Bay because what we can at least then, if you're going to do the Hamilton thing, if you're going to have Tampa versus Winnipeg, you got Ben Sherratt for Winnipeg, and you can at least, because he's an advisor for the team, you can at least say Dave Anderchuk. Anderchuk, yes. Is, we've, we've got our tie. Right? Is a Hamiltonian. And you've got Rob Kitamura, who's a scout for Tampa Bay. He's a Hamilton guy. Um, there are other things. So I'm not the biggest Ovechkin fan in the world. That's There's no question about that. But one of the things I like about the guy, first of all, he's dominant, he's big, he's strong, and, and you know maybe he's earned his chops, maybe he hasn't. I like the stand he took for the Olympics. That I'm going. I don't care what anybody says. And you know he's a Russian. He's not Canadian, but I don't I don't mind a guy taking a stand for his country. I mean, whether I love his country or not doesn't matter. But the fact that he did take that stand and said I'm going to do that, what would have happened if a bunch of Canadian guys would have said that? You know, could he be a future Dundas Real McCoy? Would you take him? Yeah, we take him. Yeah, he could own the team and then pay the players. He's got enough do re me. I, I would say so. I would say he might have the cash. I don't know if he's as wealthy as you are, but he's got the cash to certainly run a team. Well, let's put it this way. He's not in my league. <laughs> Figure out what that means. I don't, I, honestly, I, at this point, I'm um, I'm not entirely sure who, and this is unusual. I'm not entirely sure who I'm voting for. See, here's the thing. Most years, by the time we get to this point, I'm not really cheering for anybody, but there's always one team or two that I'm cheering that they don't win. I want them out because I don't want them to win. This I, year, I could agree with that. That's th- why I said I don't care. This year, I've, I'm. I, doesn't really matter to me. None of the teams that are in it right now would I be offended if they won. Yeah. None of them would I go through the roof with excitement. I'd be very excited for Ben. I, I mean, Ben Sherrod, as I say, I'd be happy for him if he won. I, I think that would be terrific. But I'm... You're looking for something to grab a hold of to, to and, find and, something. And right? honestly, Vegas, to me, is the best story. The best. Well, that's why, they're, that's why I said they're hard to cheer against. They're right? the best story because they are all... It is... Vegas was supposed to be the bad news bears. They were supposed to be a team that would not win. And rather... There's two movies involved here. They were supposed to be the bad news bears. What they became instead was the Cleveland Indians Cleveland from Indians. Major League. Charlie that, Sheen. The Charlie Sheen, and yep, and, and uh, that ended up doing really well and going to the playoffs and, and running. I, well, here, here's, here's one of the things that makes them such a great story in my mind is the fact that the NHL said for $650 million, we're going to open this draft up so you have a chance. And I'm sure that 95% of the people that saw that yawned. Going, what else are they going to say? Now, everybody knew it was a little better chance, but nobody thought they were getting this. Uh, it was a chance, but, and we got to run, we got to go here, but uh, 
they did get a chance, but even with a chance, you still have to make the right picks. And they did an exceptional job at picking the right guys. Because it, when you go back, and I did it a few months ago, went back and looked at who was exposed. They could have, there were, these are not the only guys that were out there that they could have taken. There were a lot of guys that Vegas could have taken that this thing would have been the typical expansion team and would have just pooped out. But George McPhee, did, the brilliance of what George McPhee did, I thought was take draft picks to avoid taking. He did, a, he did many things right. You leave Scott Radley alone and I'll send you a bag of pucks and a first round draft he pick did if you leave things, Radley. Yeah, he did many things right. And I he think took, he has 17 picks in the first round. Well, and he took, yeah, and he took. Well, he doesn't, but I'm kidding. He took the right guys because there were a lot of guys that he could have taken who would have messed it up in. You look. know who he's like? Steve Stales. Not many mistakes there. Good point. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.